And if you would turn with me or listen on now as we conclude the reading of that text, chapter 10, verse 1 of the book of Acts through verse 23. And really, uh, the incident goes on. It's, it's a long episode that will at least take one more sermon, if not two. It's quite a lot of text. And so we'll only get so far. But we're looking at Peter's ministry. He's still in Joppa. This is what we read. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what uh, was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously uh, to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So he had Uh, When he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Uh, The the next day, uh, as as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter uh, went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while uh, they made ready, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, uh, creeping things and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. Uh, what, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And... Uh, uh, this was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven again. While, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter uh, thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are, are seeking you. Arise, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I've sent them. Then Peter went down to the man who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, yes, I am he whom you seek for that. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God, has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to this house, to his house and to hear words from you. And then he invited them and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word as ever. We praise you that uh, we have something like Christian biography in, in, the, uh, in the Acts of the Apostles. It's, thr- it's thrilling to us, God, to read of this. And we pray that if it isn't, that it would be. That you would stir our hearts even as we read of these things and that you would instruct your church even as you did in those days. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, or as at least I hope you know, the the book of Acts is really the Acts of the Apostle, or really the Acts of two Apostles, and that's the Acts of Paul and the Acts of Peter. 
And so far we've seen uh, to a point the acts of Peter. And then briefly we have the conversion of Saul. And then Saul leaves the scene and Peter re-enters the scene. Uh, and then uh, after a period, once we get to 11, uh, chapter, the end of chapter 11, Paul will re-enter the scene. And at, at a certain point, Paul will really dominate the narrative. But in the first half of Acts, Peter really is... The dominant figure. So we're not surprised to see that no sooner does Saul uh, exit the scene than Peter re-enters the scene. We last heard from Peter in chapter 8, verse 25. This is what Luke told us. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages to uh, the Samaritans. That was the last we heard uh, from him. But now we hear from him Again, beginning in chapter 9, verse 32. One of the things uh, that might actually challenge something that I said last time, I said that the churches were enjoying peace within. Let's go with that. Uh, but uh, So I don't want to leave that point uh, or, or suggest it was wrong, only to say that this peace also included peace from without. In other words, Luke is telling us that the persecution was beginning to wane. And as a result of that waning persecution, verse 31, the church was enjoying Peace, all the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, as a result of that, Peter was free to move about. And so he began to itinerate, or he began a preaching tour. Uh, I, I, I couldn't help but think of Whitfield and his preaching tours, as I read, of Peter uh, going about the region, visiting the churches and preaching. Obviously, we think of Paul as well. The book of, so much of the book of Acts is about uh, this kind of itinerant ministry. Well, he settles for a time with the saints in Lydda. And it was there we find him performing one of two miracles. And then in Joppa, his next stop performing another miracle and receiving this tremendous vision. And all of that I want to consider together this evening. Well, the first thing I want to notice, uh, almost in passing, but I do think there's significance here, is what we read in verse 32. It came to pass as Peter went through all the parts of the country that he came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. And that is, I want to notice just the kind of ministry Peter was prosecuting. It was one of visitation. Well, did I perhaps put things too strongly before in Acts chapter 6, reducing Ministry to prayer and the ministry of the word. Well, I said those are the two main things. In fact, those were the only two things. Well, all right, I'll add this one thing to the list along with the apostles. Visitation. Ministry of the prayer and, and, and of word and visitation. We find Peter visiting Christians where they are. He was almost, I think this is a fair comparison. He was almost like David Chilton. He was almost like a regional home missionary. These were new churches. He was going around. He was visiting them. He was encouraging them. He wanted to see how they were doing. He wanted to see what they needed. Just as, well, uh, just as David is doing as he makes these, uh, these trips to Louisiana every month. That's what Peter was doing. Or he was like a pastor. You could look at this in a, on a smaller scale. Who, like Paul, visited from house to house. Let me notice that such a practice has Strong biblical warrant, visitation. Although I would also say that it isn't something really in addition to these other two things, the ministry of the word and of prayer. It's more like the natural outflow 
of a man who is devoted to the ministry of prayer and the word. A man who is devoted to these things, who doesn't become distracted, is one who will naturally take an interest in Christian converts. He will want to visit churches and uh, Christians, especially new Christian converts in their homes, in order to strengthen them and to make sure they're all right. The point that I'm making is that the ministry of visitation, here's a word for the church, it's a word for me, it's a word for the elders. The ministry of visitation is a ministry of word and prayer. That's what it's meant to be. It's not uh, sitting down and shooting the breeze. I know it can sometimes be like that. But the ministry of visitation ought to be a ministry of the word and prayer. It's just of a more intimate kind. And that's what we find Peter doing through his itinerant ministry. But that isn't the only thing we find him doing. And that really wasn't uh, Luke's focus The thing that he was especially interested to tell us he was doing in those two towns was the mighty works he did as well. And so that brings me to a second point, namely Peter's miracles. There were two miracles which he performed which had common features. We might ask at this point why this was his particular interest. Uh, In other words... In a sense, you might think what I want to know is what Peter was doing at the churches. What did he have to say to them? How did he help them? But that isn't what Luke tells us. Luke tells us of these miracles he performed. Why did he do that? He doesn't always do that. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. Why this concern to stress the miracles in these two places when so often of late he was stressing the ministry of the word, especially Well, we might just as well ask the same of Jesus in the Gospels, of whom we read both. We read of his teaching, we read of his miracles. And certainly in his ministry in the Gospels, his miracles occupy a prominent place. And why not notice the same and tell the the same tale of the apostles who carried on the same work? In a sense, you could say these men were like Jesus, at least in the sense that their ministry resembled his. That's the picture that he's painting. They weren't just preachers. They were also miracle workers. And the first miracle that Luke is concerned to tell us about is the healing of uh, Aeneas. Who was he? Well, he was a disciple in Lydda. He was a member of the church there, possibly Someone who had fled from Jerusalem. He had been paralyzed for eight years, much like the man in Mark chapter 2. There's obvious similarities there. You remember the paralytic that's brought to Jesus and he's lowered in uh, from the ceiling. Peter says, in the name of Jesus, I command you to arise. And so he does. And uh, the the point that I'm, I'm most interested in is we read that those who dwelt there saw him and turned to the Lord. To use the language of history, which I think is appropriate here, as a result of that miracle, there was a general awakening in that place. Many were converted and came into the church. That's the first miracle. The second miracle happened in this other town where he heals Dorcas, verses 36 through 43. The saints who were there begged Peter to come, and so he does. For there was one pious woman who had died, Tabitha, or also known as Dorcas. And so Peter comes, and once more we notice him occupying a similar role as Jesus had, reminding us uh, of the incident where Jesus raises uh, Jairus' daughter in in Mark chapter 5. 
And so, like Jesus, he commands her to arise, and so she does. Uh, By the way, that's a similar command that you find with the paralytic as well. And so, too, here we find a kind of general awakening. We see that many believe it became known throughout all of Joppa, or Joppa, however you say that. And many believed on the Lord. Well, what I want to notice are the common features between these two miracles. Luke is painting a picture for us. He's taking a snapshot as he likes to do. And the first thing that's very obvious in what he is describing uh, are the similarities to the miracles of Jesus. Again, this is obvious, not just in the way that Luke tells us, but in the way they actually happened. We have to appreciate what Luke is telling us here. Again, he's saying that these men are like Jesus. He really is saying that. But in saying that, he is telling us something important about Jesus himself. Do you remember how the book of Acts begins? The book of Acts begins with these words. uh, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. You remember, that's, that's really a kind of master theme for the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a story not so much of the apostles, but of the risen Lord. And it's an account... Uh, it's an an extended account of what we began to read about in the Gospels. There we read of what Jesus was doing as he dwelt among us. So now we are reading of what Jesus uh, was doing as he ascended into heaven. Now, how was he doing it? He was doing it now through his apostles. But what we need to understand is that it was he who was doing this. Jesus is still acting. He's still doing. He's in heaven, but he invests these men or these men with his own power and authority. And so we see the authority or the power that they were given as his apostles. These men were invested with authority. That's what an apostle is. Not someone who decided that he was going to be a miracle worker, but someone whom Jesus decided would have this kind of authority. And so we find him uh, as he ascends into heaven, he invests these men and he sends them on their task. The authority and the power which they had was that of Jesus Christ himself. This reminds me of an earlier incident in Acts chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus said, or Peter says there to the lame man, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now you see, when Jesus did something like that, he said, I say to you. Because he did so in his own name, in his own authority. But these men are saying in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, it is in his name and by his authority that we do these things. And Peter makes this so clear in what he says following that. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look on it so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. And it is by his authority Peter says that this man is made well. Chapter four, that comes out a little more clearly. Verses eight through twelve, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man stands here before you whole. 
This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's the same thing here. Luke takes his time with it in chapters 3 and 4, but we get exactly the same picture here, though he doesn't, uh, he doesn't say uh, nearly as much. Peter said to Aeneas, Jesus, the Christ heals you. Arise, make your bed. Not in our own power, not by our own godliness, but in the name of Jesus Christ. And as with Jesus and his miracles, the miracles of the apostles functioned as signs, as Peter himself makes clear again, going back to that earlier incident in chapter 3. Signs of what? Signs of salvation. Of the greater work of converting sinners. Again, we think of what Jesus says when he healed another paralytic. And he says, so that you may know that I have authority to forgive sins, I say to you, arise and walk. This clearly was the greater work, that of forgiving sins, which even his audience understood. And the, the miracles were a sign of that. They were a sign of salvation. They were a sign of conversion. They were a sign of spiritual resurrection. And that's why Peter said in that earlier sermon, repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may, may come from the presence of the Lord. That really is the greater point. The real point of the miracles is to show forth the power of Jesus to save, the power of Jesus to deliver from sin and its awful effects. But we also notice in each the common results. And here is a point which I think really ought to interest us. And really, I think more than anything else explains why Luke includes this in the narrative. You remember he's saying that the churches were being uh, were, were multiplied. That was the final word in verse 31. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. He's giving an account of these general awakenings in these two towns and how it came about. It came about as a result of the miracles that he performed there. And how men as a result were convinced of salvation in Jesus' name, the thing they preached. How many were saved as a result of the apostles' ministry. Now that is always, it seems to me, the great point in Acts. It is the point of the church which is growing. It's what's happening in the church as a result of what God is doing. That's the thing that Luke is most concerned to tell us about. How the Lord Jesus Christ descended into heaven and then poured out his spirit upon the church from heaven. And from there he went about building his church. You remember what he said to Peter. He said, on this rock I will build my church. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He's building his church. That's the real point here. He's calling and gathering sinners unto himself. And something that we need to hear, something that I need to hear, is that he's still doing it. He hasn't ceased to do his work. He's still reigning in heaven. He's still building his church. You read the long history of the church, and that's the thing you see. That's the thing which I find, and I, and I hope which you find, which stirs my heart when I see how sinners are converted and brought into the church. This is the stuff of Christian history, of Christian biography. It's the thing that always interests me most, how the Lord uses certain men to gather and call sinners into his church. Well, that story continues with another man as a third point, Cornelius who lived in another town, uh, 
Caesarea. And it was there that there was a centurion. Again, we are made to think of another interaction in the Gospels between Jesus and the centurion. Now, what was the significance of this man? Well, he was a faithful God-fearer. He was a Gentile who worshipped the God of Israel. He shared their hope looking for the Messiah. It occurred to me to say of him, I don't know if this is entirely fair, but maybe he was more of a likely convert. If Saul was an unlikely convert, well, this man, in a sense, was a likely convert. He was looking for salvation, and he found it. But the real significance of this man is that he was the fourth conversion in the series of conversions that Luke gives. And he's the third genuine one. You remember Simon? He was falsely converted. And then you have the Ethiopian, you have Saul, and now you have Cornelius. And Luke is very intentionally seeking to tell us uh, the story of these four men. Each has significance in their own way. Really, we could say, uh, this point is debated, but I, I feel comfortable in saying that the Gentile mission had already begun when the Ethiopian, who was a Gentile, was converted. That point is disputed, but I, I don't see why. Ethiopians were not Jews. They were Gentiles. So already uh, there was like a, a snapshot. But but I do agree when we say that the Gentile mission here really begins in a general way. It begins in earnest with the with the conversion of Cornelius. The door is being opened by God to the Gentiles and the Lord is leading them, the apostles to them. And so his conversion signals this new stage in redemptive history. Cornelius is the first of many. We don't actually read of his conversion here, by the way. We're just seeing the foundation being laid, but we'll stay with the story for a little bit. So I say again, with him, a door is open to the Gentiles and they are brought in. And we see how God uses Peter to do so. Again, Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter, you are the rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church. He also says that I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And that's precisely what what Peter has. What are the keys of the kingdom? Well, the keys of the kingdom in the case of Peter in the book of Acts is uh, is. Well, it's like a man who opens a door and invites people in. That's what Peter is doing. That's what he did at Pentecost to the Jews. He said the door is open. Come in. That's what he did when he went to Samaria and he preached to those who were there and laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. They came into the church. And that's what he would do with the Gentiles. He would open wide the door to the kingdom of God and he would invite them in through the preaching of the gospel. And so we're not surprised to see that at this new important stage in redemptive history, it is Peter whom God uses Once more to call sinners to himself, this time the Gentiles, beginning with this devout man, Cornelius. And he does so by dealing first with Cornelius, not with Peter. I'll say something about that in a moment. God gives him this vision as he was praying. Or at least we read that it was a man of prayer. So we imagine, well, we imagine it was likely while he was praying. He was a man who prayed to God always. In the vision, he is told to send men to invite Peter to his home. Something we ought to realize. 
That was unthinkable under the old dispensation, the old covenant. A Jew coming to sit at the same table as a Gentile, sharing fellowship as equals. If you want a picture of this, just remember what happens as Paul recounts it in Galatians chapter 2. Peter refused to sit with the Gentiles. You say, how can that be? Well, I'll say something about that a little later on as well. But appreciate how difficult this was, really from both directions, to imagine that both of them could share an equal place at the same table. And yet that's exactly what this man is told to engage in in the vision. And so God is signaling to Cornelius that something new was here. And in obedience to the vision, he sends his men to fetch Peter. And so we come now to Peter's vision and what follows as a final point. We notice Peter the next day uh, still in the same place, still in this man Simon's house. And he goes upstairs to pray. We know that he was praying when he received the vision. And just as an aside, we notice how both men enjoyed these happy visitations as men of prayer. It's just an aside, but it's something I think that Luke is telling us. It's something that I'm telling you that we, we should expect. I'm not saying visions. Don't hear me saying that. But I'm saying that we should expect seasons of divine visitation as we're praying. It's the man who's a man of prayer who enjoys For instance, the witness of the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's what these two men were. They were men of prayer. Are we surprised to find the Lord's favor and the Lord's face shining upon them? And this is what he saw as he was praying. Just as he became hungry, a sheet came down from heaven with pictures of all sorts of creatures, clean and unclean. And a voice told Peter to rise, kill and eat, to which he protested. In a very Peter-like way. Not so, Lord. Do you remember he'd done that once before? He said, far be it, Lord, that you should be taken from us, that you should be killed. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus said to him. Well, it was the same spirit in which he said this. He was protesting at the work that the Lord was doing. To him, it was unthinkable. He said, Lord, far be it from me to do such a thing. We see... In Peter here, how the old dispensation, the old covenant still lingered in his mind. We see how slow he was to learn of Christ and the new wineskins. He was still, as John's, John the Baptist's disciples, he was still trying to put old wine into the new wineskins. Isn't that amazing to see? Even now, Peter was still unclear about these things. And God was still revealing them to him. And so God made it clear to him, telling him in no uncertain terms that verse 15, this is the all important verse, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now, it's fascinating to notice the difference in the two visions these men received. As F.F. Bruce notes, Peter had to be prepared for the encounter as well as Cornelius. And there were scruples to be overcome on Peter's side as there were not on Cornelius Isn't that interesting to notice? The one who needed to be prepared, the one whose objections needed to be overcome were not on the part of Cornelius, but on the part of Peter. Well, as Peter wondered to himself what this meant, just then the men appeared at Simon's gate. We see here how God ordered all things well. As these men were seeking entry, the Spirit told Peter to go to these men, for they were there by the Spirit's prompting. 
And following this, Peter invites them in and they lodge there with Peter in Simon's home. And uh, we can be sure or at least we may hope that that night they shared a meal together. Although perhaps I'm, I'm too hopeful when I say that. The next day they journey together in obedience to the Spirit's command uh, to Cornelius' home, having Peter having accepted the, invita- the invitation. Well, let us leave the narrative there for now and resume it next week. And the real significance of that vision and what occurs uh, will appear in the text which follows. But here we might notice initially several lessons. And the first is, this is something which, well, which speaks to Peter, but it speaks to us as well. I'm going to say, and I hope you're not uh, offended by this, but we're all, we're all a lot like Peter. I'm a lot like Peter. I think you're a lot like Peter. And what we see here initially is the way prejudice can sometimes blind us to what God is doing. We can be locked into the wrong way of thinking about things when God is showing us that he's doing something new. Peter was still, even at this time, it's surprising to say, but it was actually the case. He was still locked into his old Jewish way of thinking about the Gentiles. And this blinded him, though it ought to have been obvious already, to the way that God would build his church. Think of it. Why did Peter need this vision? Why was he not already open? Why was he not already eager to do this very thing? Had the Lord uh, himself not already been clear so many times to Peter and to the apostles? Is there not ample evidence in the Gospels? And is there not ample evidence just in what the Lord says to them before he is taken into heaven? That the apostles were to go to the Gentiles. And yet do you see that even now. Peter cannot bring himself to do it. This is a picture of a man who is locked into uh, an old way of thinking. Just as uh, I said earlier, the the, the disciples of John the Baptist were. And so much of Jesus laboring with his apostles or his disciples in the Gospels is his attempt to bring them out of that way of thinking. But we see the work was not finished. Peter still had a long ways to go. That's why I say Peter is like us and we're like Peter because as we are slow to learn, so is he. It takes us a lifetime to learn these things. That's why we come back every week. It was not so easy for Peter to be shaken out of his old patterns of thought. But the other side of this, which is surely amazing to notice, is that every time Peter is protesting to what the Lord is doing, And sadly, we find him doing this often. The Lord is stern, but he is patient. He's patient with Peter. He's patient with us. He knows that we are like Peter. He knows that we are slow to learn. But thank God he is slow to teach. He endures long with us and tarries with us until the lesson is learned. In other words, the comfort I think we can take from this is that the Lord will not leave his church in a state of error. We may, uh, for a long period, struggle to grasp important truths. The early Christians did. But he will labor, he will tarry with the church, and he will bring her into the truth, even as he promised that he would. And so, too, we notice is another point, another lesson, that when God declares something, so it is. Look here, the voice says, and I, I think this is the really important point from the vision. 
Do not say something is not so when God has made it so. What God has cleansed you must not call common. Already in the Gospels, Jesus had declared all foods clean. Again, it's amazing that Peter still didn't understand, but he didn't. Beyond that, a deeper significance had to do with people, not food, but people. Although food in many ways was the barrier. The question was, can we sit at the same table and eat food together? So it was about food, yes, but it was also ultimately about people. And really, that's what the Lord was saying. And Peter will realize this uh, not too long from now. And when the Lord says you must not call uh, common what the Lord has cleansed or unclean what the Lord has made clean, he's not so much talking about food as he's talking about people. And here is the point that we all need to notice, a point which has a broader uh, application to the church in every age, and that is if God calls someone clean, we have no right to feel otherwise about them. That's the great point that the apostles needed to see. And if they, until they could see it, the church could never realize her full potential. Think of it. And already we've seen this. The vilest, the most reprehensible sorts of people, people like Saul. The Lord sometimes redeems. And we even see in that narrative, I think it's helpful to have this in the back of our minds, how those early Christians were reluctant at first to receive him. You see, it isn't so easy for us to call clean what the Lord has made clean. Sometimes we are still protesting. Very often we are. That's what Peter was doing. And the Lord said to him, you don't have any right to do that. You don't have any right to call unclean what the Lord has made clean. Thankfully, in the case of Saul, the Christians there realized that. Who were they to refuse him once God had cleansed him, even of the sin of persecuting the church. Or think of what the Apostle Paul. It really is a striking passage the more I think of it. Because it has so many parallels to uh, the modern day. What he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, we think about the kinds of sins that the Gentiles were given to. I could say we Gentile Americans. You see it wasn't just that they ate pork. But it was that they committed the most reprehensible types of sins, the kinds of sins that would make you and me blush. They were doing that. That's what made them unclean. That's why the Jews wanted nothing to do with them. Listen to what Paul says. He's not speaking hypothetically. He's saying this actually was the case. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't stop there. Keep going. And such were some of you. You were unclean, but you were washed, he says. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the spirit of our God. Unclean in the eyes of men, but clean in the eyes of God. You were washed, he says. Again, Gentiles, Americans, Corinthians, notorious sinners. Do we really believe? This is the question. Do we really believe that the blood of Jesus can make them clean? Even the worst kinds of sinners. The kind that makes you utterly uncomfortable. The kind that makes you blush. The kind of sin you're afraid to tell your children about. Do you believe that such people could occupy a place in these pews? 
if God should make them clean. Do you realize that's what Paul was saying to the Corinthians? He said, all of you committed these very sins, yet God has made you clean. No, it wasn't about food, not really. It was about sin. But the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all defilement. And if the Lord has done so, then we have no right to say it is otherwise. You see, that's the enduring, the enduring message here for the church. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. I realize there are times, there are times when we, like uh, the early church, have difficulty in accepting what the Lord is doing. The real difficulty is not in accepting that we are saved, is it? The difficulty is at times accepting that others are. Did God really save such a person as that? Did he really take this vile sinner and make him clean by the blood of Jesus? Well, of course, he can because he saved me. You see, that's how you ought to see it. And if God has done so, I don't care what was true of that person before. He is calling you and he is calling me to accept such people on equal terms as Christians like ourselves. Someone you would sit next to, someone you would worship with, someone you would even invite into your home. You see, that's really the radical thing that God is doing. It isn't just that he saved you. It's that he's saving others. And that's what we continue to look for him to do. Do you appreciate the scandal of this, however? One of the things that I, I, I want to say about this is that we can't make things too easy. That's, that's the danger. That's the temptation. We need to realize how difficult this was for these first Christians, not just at the beginning, but amazing to see and to say that Peter got it and then he didn't get it. And later on, uh, Paul found him afraid to eat with others and he had to rebuke him to his face. These things we have to realize are difficult. And as they were difficult for Peter, so they'll be difficult for us. But still, we need to hear the message. You must not call what God has cleansed common. But the last thing I would say is learn the mystery. Learn the mystery that Paul learned very likely at this time. He's off the scene. What was he learning? He was learning the mystery. The revelation was being given to him, as he says in Ephesians chapter 3, For this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of, the same, of his promise in Christ through the gospel. This amazing thing that God was revealing to Paul. So he was doing through Peter. He was calling the Gentiles. Don't read just of another conversion. Understand the significance of what God is doing through Cornelius and Peter. And you really ought to wonder at it. To see and to say that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs along with the Jews. Now called by God, by this Jew by birth, Peter, don't make it too easy. This is a pivotal moment in redemptive history. And Luke really takes his time. Like I said, there's a lot of text to go over. In fact, uh, he, he so relishes in telling this story that he tells it all over again. He says it twice. As Peter himself recounts it. 
Of course, Peter stumbled this stumbled at this at first and even again later in this. We see the difficulty. It wasn't made known, Paul said, in other ages. Here is the unique privilege we now enjoy that this revelation has been made to us, that we now see it clearly and we enjoy it. We live in full light of this reality. And so Paul speaking to the Gentiles in the chapter before and speaking to us as well, as well, calling us to wonder, says in verse 11, therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands that at the time at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And on and on he goes. I could keep reading if time permitted me. You see, this is the thing that Paul marveled at. He gloried in it. He said, this is my ministry. It's to the Gentiles. And do you appreciate this fact? Do you wonder that you now should have a place in the church? It's marvelous. It's wonderful. It's the kind of thing that you should praise God for you, uh, God for. And you should recognize how God has done it, how it is he has made peace, how it is he's brought you near. He's brought you near by the blood of Jesus. You who were once unclean in, in the food that you ate, yes, but also, more importantly, in the sins that you committed, Jesus Christ has made you clean. Do you believe that? Do you believe that about yourself? And do you believe that about your brother's? That he's called you and that he's called them to himself. He's made peace. And will you praise him along with me for it? Let's stand together and sing hymn 410 from the Psalter hymnal, hymn 410. Please stand. <laughs>